Bob Marley had an air of mystique long before he had ever picked up a guitar. Around the age of six, the boy had taken a liking to the practice of reading hands to determine a person's future. Those that remember him recount the freakish accuracy that came with a reading. His mother recounts for us a time when a woman known as Aunt Zen came by the shop to reveal that everything her boy had said was right. She goes on to claim that another man, Solomon Black, a district constable, came to the shop and stopped by. And as a little boy, Bob took his hand and started to look at it, started to tell him some things. And whatever he told him, the man said, you might be taking it for a joke, but everything the child told me is right. We tend to laugh at the mystic arts, but The Atlantic took the practice seriously for an article it published in 2015 entitled, Palm Reading is Real. It turns out that the human hand contains a wealth of information. Because a baby's hands form early in gestation, researchers like to say that they amount to a fossilized record of early development, one that may provide insight into future well-being. For instance, hundreds of studies have found that compared with a man who has a shorter ring finger, a man whose ring finger is longer than his index finger is likely to have a more attractive face, greater athletic talent, and more children. A male whose index fingers are longer, meanwhile, is more prone to schizophrenia and early heart disease. Then again, he's less likely to be autistic or to have ADHD. Marley wouldn't have had access to any of this information as he was growing up uneducated and unloved on the streets of one of Jamaica's most notorious slums. But there did seem to be something special about the legendary singer from the very beginning of his life. When he was seven years old, he proclaimed to everyone that he would become a famous musician when he grew up. That prophecy came true due to the singer's legendary appetite for working his way past every obstacle that was thrown in front of him. The more terrifying proclamation came about in 1969, when Marley revealed to his mother that he had a premonition that he would die at the young age of 36. Unfortunately, that prophecy also came to pass, with Robert Nesta Marley succumbing after a short fight against cancer in 1981. He had just turned 36 three months earlier. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series is about Jamaica's most famous global export, Bob Marley. Episode number four, His Final Years. Despite the copious amount of marijuana inhaled by the Rastafarian, Bob Marley lived an incredibly healthy life. National Geographic reveals that to stay healthy and spiritually connected to the earth, Rastas eat a natural diet free from additives, chemicals, and most meat. The style of primarily vegan eating is known as Ital cooking. Rastas commonly say Ital is vital pointing to how the diet got its name. Marley employed his own personal chef to travel with him at all times, and adhered to a strictly vegan diet for most of his adult life. The man that cooked for him also trained him, ensuring that the singer always remained fit enough to give everything that he had for 90 straight minutes during a performance. His workout regimen revolved around the world's most popular sport, soccer. Far Out magazine notes that whether he was at his own home, on the road, or even in the backstage area of a concert, Marley could often be seen with a football more than he could be seen with a guitar. It was a rite of passage for anyone in his circle to play a keepy-uppy game with him 
and his band. As Marley famously told an outside journalist who wanted to get to know the real person behind his mythical persona, if you want to get to know me, you will have to play football against me and the Whalers. Many claimed that his skill on the ball was good enough to rival his friend, tour manager, and resident muscle Alan Skill Cole, a man who is still known as perhaps Jamaica's greatest footballer. Some even go so far as to suggest that Marley would have been better off if he had chosen to pursue his athletic passion rather than focusing on the arts. He was a supporter of Santos, a Brazilian club, but paid close attention to the London club Tottenham after living for a number of years in England's capital. Sadly, despite residing in Chelsea, the Rastafarian never would have agreed with the statement that London is blue. The supporters of Ajax, the greatest club in Amsterdam, sing Marley's Three Little Birds during each and every single game. The tradition began during a friendly against Cardiff City in England. Fights were breaking out in the stands between the club's supporters, and the in-house DJ for Cardiff City was told to play something that would calm them down. Little did he know that 40 years later, the away side would still be belting out the fourth single released off of Exodus. He passed on his love for the sport to his daughter, Sedelia Marley, a girl named after Bob's mother. In 2008, she and the Bob Marley Foundation financially rescued the Jamaican women's national team after it had been forced to dissolve. Nicknamed the Reggae Girls Fairy Godmother, Sedelia was on hand in 2018 when the women's team celebrated reaching the World Cup for the first time. Marley was known for expressing joy on the pitch, regularly attempting to nutmeg opposing players in an attempt to blast past them. But like all serious players, he took great exception to an improper tackle. Such a thing happened early on in a pickup game in Paris, when the man marking him stepped on his right toe, hurting him enough to prematurely end the game. Junior Marvy, his lead guitarist, claims that a spike went right through the singer's nail. He had to have it bandaged, and he had to wear sandals for the rest of the tour. The notoriously dedicated musician stubbornly continued touring nonstop for the next six weeks. Iatrophobia is the fear of seeing doctors. It is believed that one out of every three humans suffer from this fear avoiding going to gather the advice of the medical community even if they believe themselves to be sick. Part of the justification for the Rastafarians eating so well was their belief that the healthier you eat, the less you have to go and see a doctor. Rather than an apple a day keeps the doctor away, Jamaicans are fond of the phrase, let the food be your doctor. Marley's right foot had been a source of perpetual pain throughout his life. When he had spent a year farming with Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler, he had stepped on a hoe that had been mistakenly left out the day before. Despite the length of his foot being gashed wide open, Bunny tells us that all Bob did was just say, cool, and just scrape away at the dirt, scraping away all the topsoil until there was that pure earth and he scraped up some of that and just opened the foot, threw the dirt in, and locked it up, tore off part of his shirt and tied it up, and Bob worked on that foot every day until it got better. Of course, he did get to ride Nimble, his favorite donkey, more often than not after the accident. While living in Delaware, in an attempt to earn enough money to cut a new Whaler's recording, he had been incorrectly diagnosed with a fungal infection in the area of his big toe. After the latest injury, the French doctors refashioned it, providing a metal cover that would protect it from jostling. It wasn't until the band later returned to England that Marley would finally consent to seek out a second opinion, visiting the Royal College of Surgeons. An incisional biopsy quickly determined that a common form of cancer, melanoma, had been found in his foot. Worse, it was graded at stage 3. 
I assume that dermatologists aren't known far and wide for their humor. But one of the worst discoveries in the building up to recording this podcast was an article in the medical journal Clin Dermatol titled, Don't Worry About a Thing, Every Little Thing Gonna Be Alright, Except for Acrolatiginous Melanoma. The authors claim that the article is intended to be a tribute to Jamaica's greatest export, but one wonders whether it's ever appropriate to joke about cancer, a disease of which everyone is either infected with or affected by via the fate of their friends and loved ones. The article reveals that little was known about melanoma within individuals of darker complexions at the time of Marley's diagnosis. Melanin determines our skin's pigmentation. It also helps to protect you from UV radiation, the leading cause of malignant melanoma. The simplest way of thinking about it is, the darker you are, the more melanin you have within your system. As a product of a hasty biracial marriage, Marley was less protected than many other residents on an island that resides close to the equator, where UV radiation is at its worst. Growing up without any interaction from his father's family also may have doomed him, as the white Marleys of Jamaica had a long history of cancer residing within their DNA, something Bob Marley would have known nothing about. This doesn't mean that darker-skinned individuals are immune, however, and doctors have to this very day utilized Bob Marley regularly to point out the dangers of skin cancer to patients who possess significant amounts of protective melanin. The first doctor that Marley saw in the aftermath of the diagnosis suggested that he amputate his big toe in order to remove the cancer. But the captain of your toes is what grants us our ability to balance. Sadly, Marley put career concerns over his health and immediately rejected the idea on face value. The second set of doctors that he saw suggested that he ought to lose his entire right leg. Although this more extreme solution ought to have sent him scurrying back in fear to the doctor that merely wanted to take his toe, the Rasta man went with the least invasive of all of the options presented a skin graft from his thigh to replace the small portion of his big toe which they operated on. Obviously, one's personal health choices are ultimately up to them, but this third option revolved around a lot of hope and prayer. Cancer technology still remained in its infancy, and although there wasn't any indication that Marley's melanoma cells had metastasized, Doctors already knew by this point that more than 80% of cases had spread by the time of a Category 3 diagnosis. Chris Blackwell, head of Island Records, urged Bob to take one of the more extreme options, or at the minimum to seek out another opinion in America, which at the time was home to the world's leading cancer researchers. Marley's fear of doctors his ignorance of the medical community, he dropped out of traditional schooling at the age of 14, and his Rasta faith, which forbid all cutting of the flesh, played a part in him having the operation that would be the least disruptive to his career, which was rising beyond anyone's best hopes and expectations for a musician from the developing world. His chef recalls that the skin graft was in early 78 in Miami or late 77. Marley thought it was cured at that point, because it healed. They gave him a cap to put over it if he was going to go play soccer. He played after. He played hard soccer. He even passed a medical exam at the start of the U.S. leg of the 1980 tour and would go on, according to the chef, to play soccer in Australia, Zimbabwe, everywhere we went and he was playing like a champion. There are no outward signs that Marley knew he was in any sort of danger, but he had long known pain and suffering, and the marijuana that he regularly smoked in accordance to his spiritual beliefs would have acted as a painkiller, potentially masking what his body was trying to tell him. 
Rather than worrying about it, historian Roger Steffens tells us that there is a deeply held belief that Rasta no deal with death. Even speaking of its possibility in a world of word-sound power is to be avoided. Rastafarian elders were giving Bob advice about his illness, decrying Western medicine and promoting Rasta teachings and herbal remedies. Many of those closest to him had no knowledge of the disease. We already covered a couple of the years after his initial diagnosis in our prior episode. Feeling as though he had fully recovered, Marley performed in Kingston at the One Love Peace concert, completed a grueling 50-show international tour in 1978, and built his own studio at his Jamaican home of 56 Hope Road. He was also awarded the UN Peace Medal of the Third World after being nominated by a Senegalese diplomat. The award was given for the positive representation that Marley had delivered for Africans affected throughout the globe in a post-colonial society. It was during this ceremony that Marley best defined the political philosophy behind his songs of protest, telling those assembled that music is the biggest gun as the oppressed cannot afford weapons. It's no use fighting that way because they are outgunned on every level. So love is the only answer available to them. He flew to Africa for the first time in 1978. Visiting the continent had been a scratch that he had longed to itch. He landed in Kenya in hopes of visiting Ethiopia, the former land of Selassie whom the Rastafarians believed had been the reincarnated Christ. But the military junta in charge of the nation had closed their borders in an effort to establish a Marxist-Leninist state aligned with the Soviet Union. While wandering around the streets of Nairobi, Kenya, however, an Ethiopian consular official noticed him and wrote him a visa to safely cross the border. Stephens notes that the short trip opened his eyes to the reality of the situation in Ethiopia following the coup that had ousted Selassie in 1974. All images of His Majesty were forbidden. He was shocked that there was no evidence of the Rastafarian faith, except for an area around Shashamain in the Orima region of the country. There, land had been given to repatriating Rastafari, mostly from Jamaica and England, who were forming a homeland for their co-religionists. Bob's idea that he should move to Ethiopia as soon as he had the opportunity was put on hold. He only remained for three days. Still, it was a momentous trip as Marley picked up the song Zimbabwe off of someone whom he interacted with while in Ethiopia. Like all of his music, Marley claimed credit for it but confidants have poured water on that assertion. Steffens writes the Skill Cole has confirmed privately that Bob paid someone for the lyrics. Its specificity was unique in Bob's catalog, calling out a nation in upheaval by name and providing the answers to its problems. Every man got a right to decide his own destiny, the song declares, approving the fight with arms, a defensive move from his point of view in accordance with a Rasta edict that you should harm no one, but not let anyone harm you. The song would become the centerpiece of his new album, Survival. And in one of the crowning achievements of his storied career, Bob would go on to sing it as Zimbabwe's independence celebrations a few months later. Zimbabwe had earned its liberation from the British Empire via the Rhodesian-Bush War. Historian William Turner sets the stage for what was happening across Africa by writing that in the uncertainty of colonial withdrawal, a tide of pan-African nationalism swept away colonial trappings discovered through a stimulation of racial solidarity and shared blackness under the pressure of colonial control. 
This movement focused on decolonization and lobbied for the isolation of the white minority regimes of southern Africa. The movement, however, deteriorated into armed struggle as it moved through sub-Saharan Africa. By the end of the 1960s, the regional situation had become gridlocked. After a long and active guerrilla campaign, ten major African liberation movements had failed to liberate any of the four imperialist areas, Angola, Mozambique, Rhodesia, and South Africa, who clamped down extensive repressive measures, broken the nationalists, imprisoned their leaders, and intimidated their followers. Resistance was futile and exile-based. Many insurgent organizations that mobilized naturally around Marxist ideologies were counterparts to colonial capitalism, but were divided by tribal loyalties and maintained different external partners. The stakes in sub-Saharan Africa almost immediately became international in scale, especially because of growing competition between imperial powers. Change seemed inevitable in Africa and pundits agreed that the day of the European in Africa had passed. Marley's music highlighted a third way designed to bypass Western colonialism and communist oppression, and Zimbabwe literally became the anthem sung among the Zimbabwe guerrilla forces at their lowest moments. The chorus declares the need to fight while simultaneously telling us that to divide and rule could only tear us apart. In every man's chest there beats a heart. So soon we'll find out who are the real revolutionaries. And I don't want my people to be tricked by mercenaries. Finally, the outro declares a desire to set up the future in Zimbabwe. But only if Africans liberate Zimbabwe, for every man has got a right to decide his own destiny. Robert Mugabe was the leader of the Freedom Fighters. Unfortunately, as the New York Times notes, Mr. Mugabe, who sought to overturn the majority's racially defined status as third-class citizens in the country of their birth, drew inspiration from Mao's doctrine of liberation through the barrel of the gun. The prevailing political orthodoxy he embraced favored one-party states, not democracy. Once secured, power was rarely given up voluntarily. While his reign as Zimbabwe's first prime minister began with Bob Marley, it ended in dictatorship and death. But at this moment in our story, the fight for liberation was ongoing and the whalers were merely watching the conflict from afar while on tour to support their latest album. Midway through the survival tour, Marley's people were approached by an intermediary for the president of Gabon, who wondered if they would be willing to perform at a planned event to celebrate the birthday of the president's daughter. First of all, Marley rarely said no to any favor. Those close to him believed that his constant state of activity designed to please others contributed to his early demise. Second, Bob had clearly desired to enter into a long-term relationship with Africa. She was a love that continually called him. Third, rarely do you get to rub elbows with true royalty, particularly black African royalty. They flew in shortly after the New Year's celebrations, met with the king, and set up in a beachfront hotel. Marley was immediately himself, opening up the five-star hotel to anyone who wished to see it, no matter how poor they may have been. The trip opened up the band's eyes to the struggles facing Africa. Judy Moat, a background singer who had been with Bob for his entire career, explains that it was my first time in Africa. I was expecting to see African people speaking in their own tongue. But then Gabon was a French territory, so they spoke French. I was hoping to see African people ruling their own destiny there. I wasn't expecting to see people. 
not that they are colonized, but they weren't free. There were people that were unemployed, and there were people that were employed who were meanly paid. Their wages were very, very low. And when I went to the marketplace, I saw the people. They didn't have refrigeration for their meat, and I saw their meat turn blue, and they were still selling it. Even for someone who knew firsthand the challenges that Trenchtown presented was appalled by the state of affairs in Western Africa. These challenges aren't surprising to anyone who listened to our very first series regarding the African slave trade. The fiscal military state and the cycle of violence and oppression which followed resulted in the kingdoms of Africa participating in the slave trade, tearing the social fabric of Africa asunder in the process. The exploitation of the continent's most productive workers in exchange for destabilizing factors such as guns and alcohol furthered the damage, resulting in a tradition of African big man dictators. Then, just as some parts of Western Africa were recovering, imperialism knocked Africa out for the count. Without fixing any of the underlying problems that had been created, European nations subsequently abandoned them in an act of generosity, in their mind at least. Now these newly formed nations were expected to find their way after having been granted, in some cases, the right to rule themselves. It was during this trip to Gabon that Bob Marley became aware that Don Taylor was double-dipping on the band's profits, having set up his own travel agency before the tour. That agency only sold tickets to the Whalers, and happened to do so at absurdly high rates. This shouldn't have surprised anyone listening, as Don Taylor, a Jamaican who had previously managed Marvin Gaye, was quite corrupt. He had come the closest to dying during the assault on 56 Hope Road. One of the leading theories for the attack had been retribution against Taylor, rather than an assassination hit on Marley. In the raid, Taylor took six bullets to his legs and torso. Those that implicate him as the target point out that he was deeply in debt to some of the worst people on the island, and that one of the gunmen hesitated upon seeing Marley before unloading on Don Taylor instead. Those who believe that Marley was in fact the target, however, point to the musician hiding behind his significantly larger manager in a mostly successful attempt at using him as a human shield. In his own recollection, Taylor claims to have been present with Marley at the gangland execution of the would-be assassins, where, according to him, one of them confessed that they had been put up to the task by the CIA. The difficulty with liars comes in the fact that you can never trust them to tell the truth. The uncovering of the airline scheme touched a nerve. Showing an anger that hadn't been present for the last decade, the Rasta's men held Taylor by his ankles from a balcony in order to coax a confession from him. Rolling Stone describes how he was able to turn pain into producing, writing that in response Marley wrote the spooky bad card, a venomous screed against a friend who reveals himself to be a sneaky con man. Unfortunately, due to the fact that the song was released in an election year, the song was quickly adopted as a campaign song by the incumbent People's National Party, who were themselves, as politicians, among the most notorious of con men Jamaica produced. The band's adventures in Gabon came to an abrupt end when their guide caught them smoking herb. He started the process of shipping them out, but Bob's popularity and the fact that he was scheduled to perform that evening threatened to produce a riot. The whalers were allowed to complete their contract, but were then quickly ushered out after the performance. Their time away from Africa wasn't long, as they were invited to return and perform at the Zimbabwe Independence Celebrations in April of 1980. After 15 long years at war, Mugabe's bush warriors had emerged victorious. 
By this point, Marley was fully aware of the challenges of performing on the African continent. Yet war-torn Zimbabwe was the most desolate destination he had ever visited. He was so moved that his song had become the rally cry for those who had won the struggle to overthrow European oppression that he personally financed the entire trip. That wasn't just the flights, hotel, and food, as he literally paid to build a stage fully equipped with state-of-the-art lighting and sound and had it shipped across the Atlantic for him to perform on. Bob Marley had always been generous, giving away a small fortune each and every year to those who were in need. The Rastafarian faith believes that all humans are part of the original 12 tribes of Israel. Marley's particular tribe is identified as Joseph, who was known for feeding the children of Israel during their seven-year exile from Egypt. For those who like to try and see divinity present within our world, Marley himself happened to have spent seven years of his life touring international lands, feeding his audience with spiritual sustenance. Colin Leslie was his business manager, and thus in charge of writing out the checks to fulfill Marley's charitable wishes. He recalls the neighborhood being filled with people, overflowing into the streets and down the sidewalks. In the late hours of the night, Marley would be interviewing them, finding out what their particular needs were. In a video tribute, Chris Blackwell claimed that Bob was responsible for the support of 4,000 people. But Leslie believes that this is a severe underestimation. His lover, Cindy Breaksphere, claimed that people begged him for things every day, whether it was money or whatever, and he gave whatever to whoever. He didn't prize material things, she tells us, and he didn't prize money. He always dressed in a way that looked like he didn't have two cents to rub together. He loved his jeans. They were the only thing he cared about. One shoe laced up, the other open. One tongue hanging out, one sock up, one down. Rude boy. And that was really too part of the essence of Bob, that he was so unaffected. He gave a lot of money away. He gave his dinner away. Whatever it was the people required of him, he gave it. Neville Garrick, the executive director of the Bob Marley Museum in Kingston, points out that the generosity that the singer displayed in Zimbabwe surpassed any reasonable expectation. He tells us that although Bob was no millionaire, he felt a commitment that because the invitation had only been from Marley and two others, it was all that the new country could afford at the time. His decision to build a stage allowed him to perform a second free concert for the regular people of the nation, rather than just the government dignitaries. Their inability to have performed a free show for impoverished people had been the band's biggest regret in Gabon. Deep in his soul, Marley felt it was unfair that Africans should see him perform while standing on some risers. He wanted them to be able to experience a show on the same level that he performed regularly in Europe and America. The full band and crew flew in on April 16th, temporarily getting stuck next to Prince Charles, the man who currently sits on the throne of England at the airport. While you might imagine how fascinating it would have been to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation, the only thing spoken between the two men was the prince wondering aloud where Bob Marley had gotten his sneakers. Marley's entire entourage stood in amazement as they politely observed 300 men and women practicing for the coming Independence Day festivities. These were actual freedom fighters who had put into action the forms of protest that Bob had envisioned while perfecting his lyrics. They had actually gotten up and stood up against the most impressive empire in world history. Rather than speaking a foreign tongue like those he had met in Gabon, 
These men and women sang revolutionary chants with strictly African rhythm and style. Dara Tompkins was besides Marley and recalls that he was staring directly at the soldiers and had tears in his eyes. These were tears of the deepest and highest respect from one committed freedom fighter to another. When their hotel turned out to be substandard, they shacked up with a wealthy local named Job. Tompkins remembers that they were in a home where no one knew the address, with no phone and no one attending the group other than the house help. They performed towards the end of the festivities, with Marley declaring, Greetings, brothers and sisters of Zimbabwe. Bob Marley and the Whalers give thanks for the invitation to your independence celebration. One love, Rastafari, yeah, Rastafari lived, before shouting out Viva Zimbabwe three times to those that had assembled. Positive vibration was followed by Them Belly Full and Roots Rock Reggae. But disaster struck in the middle of I Shot the Sheriff as tear gas was thrown towards the stage, causing a stampede. Bob's wife, Rita, quickly grabbed their sons, Ziggy and Stefan, and desperately sought out water to wash their eyes out. The last person remaining on the stage was Bob Marley. As he had proven during the Smile Jamaica concert, he was fully willing to die a martyr on the stage that he loved. No one knew what was going on. Zimbabwe had just finished a violent 15-year fight against the British but this was designed to be a peaceful exchange of power, one that the crown prince was personally in attendance for. It turns out that the chaos was caused due to a misunderstanding outside of the gates, with a large number of actual guerrilla freedom fighters having been denied entrance to the venue. When they heard the crowd singing, but I did not get the deputy, it was too much for them to bear. Differing accounts exist for who fired the tear gas, with some placing blame on those that sought entrance, while others claim that it was the government's security forces attempting to deny their entrance. Either way, it was eventually settled, and Marley returned to the stage, albeit without his wife and kids. Tompkins explains what happened after the set as Job and their other hosts all left Rafaro Stadium to attend the celebratory balls. The rest of us were left with a truck and a driver who could not drive a manual transmission vehicle. So everybody who could help had abandoned the whalers. To make matters worse, we didn't know where we were staying. We didn't know which street Job lived on, and we did not know what section of the city. Nobody knew a thing, and there was nobody to ask. Bob Marley had just finished the most important performance of his career, and we had no way home. On the second night, he played a free, unplanned show. But it was hardly attended, and those that did didn't understand the customs that come along with Western concerts. After finishing up his set with the song Exodus, the band departed the stage, but didn't strike the set in anticipation of an encore but the people of Zimbabwe had no concept of what an encore was. Tompkins recalls for us what happened next, stating that the concert goers heard the song Exodus and then made for the exits. Anywhere else, people would be begging, hammering, and clamoring for more. And they just politely said, thank you, Bob Marley. Okay, it's over, bye. To add to the comedy, Marley made just one request of his hosts asking them to take him to see the lions. They brought him to a zoo. There is no sign that he knew what was coming while recording it, but when he returned home, he worked on what would be his final album, Uprising. Justin Chadwick, writing for Albinism, tells us that the album explores the inherent conflicts between the spiritual and secular worlds. 
more than any of the band's previous works. Uprising is an album propelled by heightened introspection and duality. Sanguang's songs of hope that celebrate life and love are juxtaposed with apocalyptic songs of doom and gloom that fatalistically lament the world's wicked ways. The fact that it was the last work that Marley produced makes some of his choices appear eerie in retrospect. The album includes the song Zion Train, which describes a vehicle coming to take him back to the Holy Land. The song Work also appears on the album and eerily seems to count down his final days. But the lasting impression of the work is the inclusion of what would become his most famous song, Redemption Song, in which he insists that none of them can stop the time. Rather than using fancy mixing technology, every track on the album was recorded live with the band, capturing some of the early magic that had made himself Bunny Whaler, and Peter Tosh, musical legends in Jamaica. Redemption Song originally had a full musical backing, but producer Chris Blackwell suggested that it just be Marley and his acoustic guitar. Rolling Stone tells us that the anthem was inspired in part by a 1937 speech by black nationalist leader Marcus Garvey. Its verses felt positively biblical, and lines like emancipate yourself from mental slavery, a direct Garvey lift, and how long shall they kill our prophets while we stand aside and look, would soon carry a worldwide moral weight to trump national anthems. Music reporter Arwa Haider explains that the potent beauty of Marley's song, though, lies in its lack of ego. Redemption's song is a simple melody that breaks your heart and then blisters your spirit with the liberating force of its lyrics. He continued his non-stop work routine, performing to the largest audience of his career in the famous San Siro Soccer Stadium in Milan. Stefan points out that Pope John Paul II had appeared there just the week before, but had failed to draw the same crowd as the Rastafarian had. The release of this album and the supporting tour finished the terms enshrined in his legal recording contract. Marley was finally free to direct his own destiny and was expected to receive one of the largest recording contracts in history. But it never came to be. In a crazy outreach effort to the African-American community, a group that he desperately sought to be accepted by, Marley made a unique deal with the New York radio station WBLS. They agreed to play his song, Could You Be Loved, every hour on the hour for three straight months. In return, he would open up for the Commodores, an aging band fronted by Lionel Richie. It seemed like a great pairing, as the Commodores were unable to draw any white audience members, while the Whalers had similar issues attracting African Americans to their live shows. The only issue was that the Commodores would be the headliners, something that was comical based upon where the bands were at the moment. Still, Bob agreed to the unorthodox deal, and when it came time for the concert, Marley did his thing, as he always did, and blew the roof off the place. But Madison Square Garden looked like a ghost town after they were done, with the audience not bothering to stick around for Richie's main act. Despite the rage hurled at them by the Commodores, the Whalers would have viewed the Madison Square Garden show as a complete success. But soon after, disaster struck, as Marley collapsed while going on a routine jog in Central Park in preparation for one of his standard pickup soccer games. His crew got him immediately to Mount Sinai Hospital. The most renowned cancer doctor on the planet personally performed the scan, which in the words of his former producer Danny Sims revealed more cancer in him than any living being. It had spread to his lungs as well as to his head. 
His doctor presented some gallows humor as he broke the news to Marley's closest attendants, telling them that had the singer amputated his big toe, he would have lived longer than everyone in the room. The diagnosis of three months left to live meant that the next show in Pittsburgh would be Bob Marley's last. Despite the sentence that now hung above his head, the workaholic went through his normal routine, personally going about the sound check which lasted for hours. He and his friends played keep upsies with a soccer ball during the downtime just as they always had. His guitarist, Junior Marvin, remembers the show going off flawlessly, with work as the final song performed within a medley of Get Up, Stand Up. It was a fitting send-off to a man who had dedicated his entire life to his work. Despite the dire diagnosis, Marley didn't give up. He first began chemo in Miami, and as part of the process had his beloved dreadlock shorn off. His wife Rita was beside him and didn't cause a fuss when Bob's former flame, Cindy Breaksphere, came to be with him during a portion of his hospitalization. Advice was listened to from all corners, including the elders of the 12 tribes, trying to convince Bob that it was all a lie and that cancer couldn't live within a Rastafarian. They floated a return to Jamaica for traditional healing, but eventually the group agreed to send him across the Atlantic in hopes that Dr. Joseph Issels, an ex-Nazi doctor who ran an alternative treatments clinic in the German Alps, could figure out a way to prolong the singer's life. Incredibly, Bob was baptized by the Archbishop of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church before they left for Europe returning the Rastafarian closer to the faith of his youth. It was not a complete rejection of his spiritual Rasta beliefs, despite what many religious websites claim. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church was originally commissioned by Hale Selassie, but an Orthodox baptism, as it was claimed to have been, did involve a formal rejection of Selassie as the living God in favor of Jesus Christ. It is true that Dr. Issels was an ex-Nazi, but that fact was true of virtually every German forced to live beneath the rule of Adolf Hitler. Issels was a member of the SS, having joined it in hopes of advancing his career prospects. He resigned in 1938 after being ordered to stop treating Jewish patients and thus avoided the worst portions of the SS's war against the Jews. Resigning from the Nazis, however, wasn't as simple as speaking up for someone else's basic human rights, and the doctor spent a number of years of the World War II era as a prisoner of war in Russia. Initially, Marley's time in the Alps was pleasant, and he recovered enough to play some light games with a soccer ball, as well as taking hikes through the mountains. But soon, his health began a steady terminal decline. He became quiet and spoke slowly regarding the beauty of the white sand beaches of Jamaica. On his birthday, he played a guitar for about 30 minutes. It was about all that he could muster. They presented him with a cake that declared him the reggae king. But unfortunately, the cake maker had spelled reggae incorrectly. That was how he celebrated turning 36 the age which more than a decade earlier he had claimed would be his last. A few months later, Dr. Issels declared that there was no more that he could do for Marley and discharged him. The singer intended to eventually return to Jamaica, but instead found himself in intensive care in Miami. It was during this time that he said goodbye to his kids and other various family members. Unfortunately for all involved, he refused to sign a last will and testament, which meant that a lengthy legal fight regarding his wealth and catalog rights ensued. He passed away peacefully within that Miami hospital on May 11, 1981.
Steffens informs us that Prime Minister Edward Sega, the man whose forces had come to kill Bob Marley in 1976, although it must be noted that there's no evidence that Sega had advanced knowledge of the plot, delivered the eulogy at Bob's funeral. It was the largest such gathering in Caribbean history, with more than a million mourners, half the island's population, lining the route from Kingston all the way to his burial place in Nine Mile. That day, there were seven rainbows over the city of Kingston. On a bright morning, when Bob's work was over, and he flew away home to Zion. He wasn't a perfect man. There's no such thing on this planet. But he was a good man. Redemption's song came off of his 12th studio album, late into his recording career. But it remains widely regarded as Marley's most famous song. Like all others that he wrote, snippets were written across years as the singer fine-tuned the song to perfection. The website American Songwriters' analysis of the song begins with the belief that somewhere deep within his soul, Marley knew that he was sick and dying. This was his chance to leave behind a final message before passing. That organization tells us that Redemption's song begins with the story of how the narrator has been persecuted for years, only to overcome it all with heavenly aid leading to the aforementioned triumph. It was as if Marley was letting his millions of fans know that he was going to be all right in his next journey, that his own Rastafarian faith was giving him strength in what must have been a time of great pain and fear. His request to all of his listeners within that song is for everyone to finally help a man who had been holding up his world for so long for all of us to help to sing these songs of freedom. Although he had already achieved massive success within his short lifetime, the awards have continued to roll in for the work that Bob Marley accomplished. In 1994, he became the first Third World inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and the New York Times named him the most influential musical artist of the second half of the 20th century. Time magazine named Exodus as the album of the century, and Marley has been awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award. His greatest hits album, Legend, holds the distinction of being the longest charting album in the history of Billboard magazine's catalog album chart. Hollywood is releasing a major biopic early in 2024, meaning that his legend will only grow as he is presented to yet another new generation ready to get up and stand up. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.